Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We scratch our heads when the Bible repeats a boring statement over and over again, But what should puzzle us is the odd moment when the Bible seems to take shortcuts like the rest of us. Why, after enumerating the words of Jesus twice, does Matthew summarize the third prayer to the Father by saying, He said the same thing once more. The answer reflects the Lord's exasperation with his watchmen, who, as it turns out, are not very good at their job. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 43 to 46. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 401 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We spent some time earlier this year talking about the way in which the scriptural writer reflects how things actually transpire in the world. Meaning, if I were to say to one of my children, go to the store and tell the clerk at the desk, I would like a box of flathead screws one inch in length. My child would go to the store on my behalf and repeat those exact words at the hardware store when speaking with the clerk because they need to get one inch flathead screws. They need to repeat those words because that's what needs to be said when they arrive at the store. We can all agree on that fact. If character A is told, say this, and then it needs to be repeated either by character A or character B or character C later in the story, the same words are repeated. Most of us are painfully familiar with this mechanism in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we hear annually at length. When you hear the sound of dot, dot, dot. We all wish it were dot, 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 but it's not. (laughs) So it's striking then here in the garden, in the Gospel of Matthew, which also took us through a series of repeated words in Matthew 25. It's striking that here in the garden, when we come to the third encounter between Jesus and his father, we don't hear the scriptural writer spell out what was said. Looking at Jesus' words in the first time and the second time, there is a difference. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That's the first time. Second time, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. There are clearly different wordings, and as you said, Father, there has been several times in Matthew 25 at the Last Judgment, I think, is a great example of 
repetition, 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 repetition. Here it's not repeated. The prayer that Jesus says the second time is clearly different from the first. The first time he's talking about, if it's possible, may this cup pass. And then the second one says, if I have to drink it, then let your will be done. The first time he says, I'd love not to drink this, but it's how you want, Father. And the second time he's like, all right, if I have to drink this, as you want, Father. So there's a difference in tone, and it's sandwiching this time where he comes and sees that his disciples are not interested in staying awake with him and are not going to be with him and are indeed betraying him from the first moment after he said, you're going to betray me. And so as he goes off to pray this third time, it's with this context of more resignation to the Father, acceptance of the Father's will, and acceptance of the betrayal by his disciples. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. To my ears, this seems sloppy, purposefully sloppy, because as you just pointed out, Richard, he didn't say the same thing the first two times. He was very specific in saying, not my will the first time, which he didn't say the second time. And not my will is a striking statement. He's pointing out that it's not going to be his way. It's going to be the father's way. The second time, he's just saying, it's your way, dad. He's just giving in the second time. This third time, it almost feels like he's giving up, or the writer is expressing this attitude of giving up, giving in to the Father and giving up on the disciples because it's too late. The time is at hand. We're out of time. If you don't have oil in your lamp, the words aren't going to help you at this point. So why bother repeating them? That's the feel I'm getting from the narrative, Rich. Scripture repeats itself when you're still on the path from the day of grace and the day of peace is ahead of you. But we're coming up now on the day of peace where the books will be settled. Again, it's literature because the books were settled in Matthew 25, but not really because Jesus was telling you what it will be like when the books are settled. Now for Jesus, the books will be settled because he's going to be crucified. And it's a time of test for his students because they're throwing him under the bus because they didn't keep vigil with him. And now the opportunity to keep vigil with him is past. So what more is there for him to say? Why should Matthew bother enumerating those words? I don't need you to go to the store and pick up the screws anymore because I'm not doing the project anymore. It's over. The project is complete. There's nothing more to talk about. Go back to sleep, guys. I've got to go now do what I've got to do. It's almost as if the word is taken away from him. Matthew doesn't refer to Jesus's word. It's as if you see the gradual disappearance and diminution of Jesus's will. It's completely subsumed in the will of his father. The first time he sees the disciples asleep, he says, Peter, couldn't you have stayed awake? And the second time, he sees them asleep, and he doesn't bother saying anything. He doesn't wake them up. He found them asleep because their eyes were heavy, and he left. Like, that's it. He didn't even say anything. So he's saying less and less to the disciples, 
And Matthew is, even though he's having Jesus speak, the words are becoming less relevant. Matthew isn't even mentioning them. And it's as if God's plan, the plan of the Father, is completely unfolding to such an extent that whatever anyone might say, it's becoming irrelevant. Even the way that Matthew puts it in Greek, King James says, saying the same words, but in fact, in Greek, it's saying the same word when he prays to his Father. So the word is what he's praying. And the word was different in the two previous times because the words were different. But what Jesus is saying is it's the same reduction in his own will as the will of the Father is manifested. Well, let's hear the pattern again to stress the point that Matthew is making in this reduction. The first time he's saying, not what I decide, but what you decide. So he is clearly rejecting what Americans worship, which is choice, personal truth, and I'm the boss of me nonsense. He's saying clearly, I'm not the boss, you are. Not what I want, not what I desire, not what I choose, not what I decide, not what I will, but what you will. The second time around, he says, look, if this has to be done, and there's no way for it to be done unless I do it, then I'm going to do it. So be it. Because the thing that matters here, Dad, is your decision. I don't have a choice in the matter. And the third time, look, there's no point in talking about this. We all know it's up to you. That's the progression. And the third time, there's no point in talking about it because Jesus from the beginning has already submitted to the will of his Father. That's the word spoken, submission and obedience to the Master. And the giving up at the end is not giving in to the Father because that took place from day one. It's giving up on the students. It's giving up on the student, Peter, who is the betrayer above and beyond Judas. And I think our conversation about the meal with the Twelve is highly functional here because this question of betrayal is going to come up again. And it's not clear to me that when Jesus refers to the betrayer, it's not clear from the text that he's only referring to Judas. And I want to keep stressing this point, Rich. It's like at work, if my boss says, you need to go do this thing. The first thing I was like, is there a way for me not to have to do this thing? And then my boss slowly raises his eyes from his desk to look at me. And I say, if I have to do it, then I'll do it. And then the third time, it's, if I have to do it, I'll do it. And then I slowly back out of his office and I go and do the thing. (laughs) That's how it works. (laughs) Exactly. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is the actual thing in the story to which the parable of the kingdom was referring. This is what the coming of the Son of Man looks like in real life. 
not his victory, which is akin to Caesar's victory in the story, but his crucifixion. Because the victory that looks like Caesar's victory doesn't come until the end, which doesn't come in the New Testament. The second coming doesn't happen in the New Testament. It's only preached as a hope against hope in the New Testament. You're stuck with the coming of the Son of Man here in Matthew, which is his defeat. He's being conquered by his father, and he will lose to Caesar very shortly, and he will be betrayed by his own people, and he will be murdered, executed, shamefully. That's where we are in the story. And it's too late for Peter and the others. They are like the virgins who don't have oil in their lamp. And there's no excuse for them because they've been with the master all along. It's like Jesus has been saying, here's some oil. And they're like, oh, what's that, Jesus? What are we supposed to do with that? We've got lamps here. What do you want us to do? Huh? Oh, thanks for the oil, Jesus. We're going to take a nap. We'll put the oil in later. And now it's too late. And Jesus talks about being betrayed because the hour is at hand. Who do you think is betraying him? Certainly Judas is betraying him. But what about all his friends who were snoring when they should have been standing and keeping watch with him? The King James translates this very differently. It doesn't translate the initial words of Jesus as a question, but as an imperative. Sleep now and take rest. In the King James, there's this feeling of Jesus's resignation. Look, the robber came to the house. If you were awake, you would have protected the house. You were asleep. He cleaned us out. Go back to sleep. The thieves aren't going to come back. (laughs) There's nothing left for him to take. The time's now. Anything that you could have done, the opportunity's gone. The keros is past. The keros to being awake and alert, it's done. The time when you could have gotten the oil, that time is past. The time when you could have been ready for the master to come or ready to protect the house from a robber, it's done. The time when you could have served me by serving the poor and those in need, it's done. The time has passed. So there's a moment of resignation, which fits with what we saw above, because he's resigned to his father's will, too, saying like, well, I guess the cup's not going anywhere. <laughs> I guess I, I guess I'm going to take this cup and I'm going to drink it. I'm going to side with the King James translation of the Greek. Richard. It flows with the narrative. It reflects the resignation in Matthew's choice to not enumerate the words that Jesus spoke to the Father the third time. What would be the point of interrogating them when you're resigned that there's no hope? It's very damning. Get up! Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So what strikes me about this verse is that he refers to betrayal a second time. There's more than one person betraying him. He's betrayed by his friends, and then he is betrayed specifically by Judas. But Judas represents Judah and the 12 tribes. So who is the one who betrays him? This is the point I want to keep stressing, Richard. He is betrayed by his own community. And if we remember that this text is not written by the church. The church did not write the Bible. Can I say it more clearly? I really want to be as clear as possible. The church did not write the New Testament. The church is judged by the New Testament. The church is judged by the Bible. 
the New Testament was written and addressed to the church as a warning. Let's be really clear on that. And if that's the case, we have to hear it as follows, that the judgment against the 12 tribes is a judgment against the church or churches, because there's more than one church in different cities, in different places. So it's the Gentile churches who are judged, which means it is the church that betrays Jesus Christ. That is what Matthew is teaching. We are the betrayers. That's why historicity is such a big, fat joke. And then you develop your theologies where you try to figure out who killed Jesus and who's the new Israel and all this nonsense. Nonsense. We are the betrayers. The priest is the one who breaks the body of Jesus Christ in the liturgy. Come on. On Holy Thursday, when we read the Passion Gospels, we crucify Jesus and we bear witness to his execution. We are guilty. We betray. We go and we hear the gospel and we celebrate the liturgy and we walk out the doors of the church and we treat each other poorly and we make fun of people from different religions and we think we're better than everybody else. We mistreat our children. We mistreat our spouses. We play the game at work in order to get ahead and make more money. We engage in politics. We go on Facebook and treat each other like crap. And then we go back to church and we ask for forgiveness. Who is the betrayer? Come on, people. We are the betrayers. Is it so hard to understand why the body must be broken? This is my body, which is broken for the remission of sins. And we want to protect it and preserve it and build it in order to preserve our sins, not to remit them. We want to defend our sins. We want to build a fortress around Jerusalem to make sure that we can keep sinning until the Lord comes back. We're just kicking the can down the road. Let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. There's no time anymore to talk. Either get up and come along or, you know what, it's fine. Yalla, bye. You just stay sleeping. I have work to do. And that's exactly what's going to happen. What you were saying was really important because we want to use this to justify ourselves and justify ourselves as the new Israel. Because the one who betrays him is coming doesn't mean that he is the exclusive betrayer. And I think the Greek makes this more easily understood because the word for betray in Greek is handing over. So the Son of Man is being turned over to the hands of sinners. Behold, he is at hand that doth turn me over, hand me over, give me over. Paradidus. So the one handing over. So there's one person who hands Jesus over, but there are also all those who were going to keep watch so that he wouldn't be handed over. So if you have an invading army and you have a watchman, the invading army is doing something nasty because they're invading. But if you have a watchman who doesn't tell anybody, <laughs> then it's not just the invading army's fault. It's the watchman's fault. And this is what God reminds Ezekiel more than once, that as the watchman, he has a single job, and that's warning that danger is approaching. If you say your word, 
and they all ignore you and they die, their blood is in their own hands. But if you do not warn them and they disobey, then their blood is on your hands. We had Peter and the others who slept through the whole thing. They did not keep watch when they were told to keep watch. And we know from Ezekiel, this is serious business. So a watchman who does not watch, who does not keep vigil, who does not warn when danger's at hand, Jesus had to find the danger himself. The king hires a watchman to tell him when there's an army. And he goes and he wakes up the watchman and says, by the way, an army's coming. I mean, at least that watchman's going to get fired when this is all said and done, right? But he's not going to say, wake up, it's time to do your job. No, the army's already here like you missed your opportunity. They betrayed their duty. They had a duty, and that was to keep watch while Jesus prayed because Jesus was in danger. Jesus knew that he was being hunted. And he said, can you just protect me while I go and pray? And they didn't do it. So we think that they were supposed to like keep him company and, and make him feel comforted because he was sad. No, he was being hunted, obviously. He was in danger, clearly. And they were just there to say, hey, Jesus, you might want to go to a different garden. <laughs> There's a bunch of people here who are going to get you. We saw their torches coming up the hill. No, they were asleep. They didn't see any torches. And Jesus didn't notice because he was praying and he had expected them to keep watch. This is the betrayal. The betrayal is that they were his watchmen and they didn't warn him when there was danger. They failed at the last opportunity they had to do their duty. Thanks very much, Dr. Benza. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.